Hey, what's up, DSBC? My name is Caleb, and surprisingly, I serve as the lead pastor at Desert Springs Bible Church, and I am presently on sabbatical, but I wanted to take a quick moment and uh, connect with you via Zoom. Uh, I am here in uh, the North Pole, as it turns out, and uh, met some of my friends. We've been hanging out. I've been relaxing and recuperating and getting refreshed, excited to be back with you here in just a couple of weeks. But I wanted to connect over Zoom right now uh, just for a couple of quick reminders and also to introduce you to today's speaker. Number one, I want to remind you that we have our Christmas Eve services coming up. You can find more information on our website, dsbc.church. I strongly encourage you uh, to invite some friends and family members to join you for Christmas Eve. It is one of my favorite times of the year, and I look forward to seeing you there. The second thing is I wanted to introduce you to Josh Watt. He serves as the pastor at Redemption North Mountain, and that's a church that we as a church family, help to plant and are continuing to invest in them. I have loved seeing how God has been using Josh and his team to minister in our area. Right now, they are meeting on 7th Street and Thunderbird, but Josh is uh, blessing our church family today with the word that I know is going to be both powerful and encouraging. And so would you please join me in welcoming up my friend, your friend, Pastor Josh Watt. Come on up, Josh. Bye, everyone. Bye, friends. Bye. That man leads this place. That is impressive. God bless you guys. I'm the guy he announced, Josh, and I'm a good friend of Caleb, and I appreciate you guys a bunch. You guys pray for us. You support us financially. Uh, we would not be where we're at without just the churches in this area being super generous. So, And I get to come and preach and just be a part of this church family, which is a huge uh, blessing. When I said yes to preaching during Caleb's sabbatical, I did not realize I was on the tail end. So I feel like it's a road trip. Going to San Diego is a blast because me and I've got four sons, one wife, and we love going to San Diego. So the drive there is a blast. It flies by. The drive home, on the other hand, is long. And you're like, are we going to get there? And I am on the tail end of this drive you guys are going through with all these guest preachers. And you're like, Bring back that guy, the elf guy, Caleb, but you get me and maybe a few more people and then you get that crazy guy back here in your pulpit. So I get to talk through the birth of Jesus. I love Christmas. I loved it before as a Christian. I especially love it after meeting Jesus and being filled with the spirit, but I love Christmas. And more and more, I meet people that are kind of like on the fence about Christmas. I was reading this, these stats about Christians in churches, in Bible teaching churches, and how more and more just the Christmas story is not as in the water as it used to be. These stats said somewhere between 30 and 45% of Christians in churches that were in this survey could not recount the birth story of Jesus. That's crazy, right? I mean, it's the greatest story ever told. We just sang a bunch of songs about it, and more and more people are kind of missing out on the details. So I want to read a birth story of Jesus here, a story that we've heard. If we have a nativity scene in our house, these are key figures in our nativity scene. These are important people. I want to read and talk through the story of the wise men. So if you have a Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 <clears throat> this morning. I'm going to read... The visit of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read just the first 12 verses, and we're going to walk through this together this morning. Remember, this is God's word. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you... O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That is God's word. I want to pray and just ask God to meet us here in this moment. Let me, would you pray with me? Father, this story has been told maybe more than any other story. And yet we need to hear it again. We need to hear it over and over and over again. The birth of Jesus. The fact that God came to earth to dwell with us. So God, speak to us fresh again as we gather this morning through this wonderful story. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So that's the story we're walking through. What is the Christmas story about? I love doing weddings. I'm actually doing a wedding after the service this morning. I get to go officiate, and I always ask this question, what is marriage about? I ask rhetorically. People often answer and shout out very bad answers, but marriage is about, biblically, there's an answer. It's about oneness. What is Christmas about? It's about family. It's about friends. If you're in my house with the Watt boys, it's about eggnog. We love eggnog. What is Christmas about? And in this story, I think Christmas shows itself to be about worship. These men travel across the east. Why? It says they, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship Jesus. The baby, the king of the Jews. Christmas is about worship. Here's what's unique about worship. It sounds like a religious word. It sounds like it's just limited to people who would call themselves churchgoers or Christians or uh, some sort of religious affiliation. But everybody is a worshiper. There's a quote I love from an author, David Foster Wallace, who has passed away. But he says this, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what? We worship. Meaning in every human heart, there's this desire for something more. To bow down and worship in our hearts something bigger and greater than ourselves. That quote goes on to say, it's not going to be on the screen, but I want to read it. And he says, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, whether it be Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or some wicked God or all any of these other gods, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, 
If they are where you look for real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's just the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Everybody worships. We just get to choose what, better yet, who it is we worship. And as I've been just walking through the Christmas story, just in my own heart, my own quiet times, and preparing for this and for my own church, Christmas is about worship. And as I read the story of the wise men, which is a story, if you've grown up in church, if you've grown up in a home that celebrates Christmas, this is part of the allure of Christmas. These weird, mystical wise men, these little figures in your nativity scene, what's their story? What are they adding to the story? And I think it's a story about worship. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk through this, and I've got six observations of the journey to true worship. We're all worshipers, David would say. Every person in this room is a worshiper. Even if Jesus is far, far from you and you want nothing to do with him, you were just dragged in here. You still at your core, like me, are a worshiper. So we're going to watch these wise men and watch the journey they take to true worship. So here's the first thing I see as I walk with this story. Verse 1, let's read it again together. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Here's the first thing I noticed. The journey to true worship often starts far, far, far away. The journey to true worship often starts far away. How far did these men travel? What do we know about this story? A lot of people fill in a lot of details. They had camels. They said there's only three None of that is told in this story. They're just told they're from the east. They are wise men. They are magi. They're these mystical figures from the east. We also know in this story the word used to describe Jesus is small child. So it's not baby, infant, just born Jesus. Some time has passed. It also says they went to a house. They're not in a manger. So Mary has passed the time of purification. So think months, maybe a lot of months. And then these guys from the east, where at in the east, where do they come from? Probably Persia, modern-day Iraq. Hundreds and hundreds of miles, probably on horseback. Sorry if your nativity scene's wrong. <laughs> but they came from far, far, far away. Matthew's the only one to record this part of the Christmas story which has become ingrained into our telling of this story. Why does Matthew record these people coming from far, far, far away? Is his point, geographically, they came from far, far, far away? Or does he have something more deep and profound he's trying to tell us? Here's what he's trying to tell us. Matthew is a Jewish man. The gospel of Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. And the Gospel of Matthew is about the Jewish king, Jesus. And the first people to show up on the scene with little baby Jesus to worship him are non-Jews. They're Gentiles. It's Matthew's way to say, hey, Jewish brothers and sisters, our king is here and he's a king for everyone. You can come from as far as you want. As far from God as you are, he is the king that's to be worshipped by everyone. Not just us, the Jews. 
So I ask you this question just to ponder this Christmas season. Do you remember how far from God you once were? Part of the Christmas season should be celebrating the fact that you, like the wise men, once were far, far from God. And he came close, so close, he took on flesh. But here's the other thing I think about, and I think we should think about in this room. Who are the people in your life that are far, far, far from God? You've kind of written them off. There's no chance. They're too far off. Like Redemption Church was founded by a guy named Tom Schrader. He's passed away since then. Great guy, great Bible teacher. I love him. But he came to the Lord later in life, in his 40s. And there was this Bible study at work. He was a commercial real estate guy. And he got saved, and he went back to this Bible study group and said, hey, why did you guys never invite me? And they said, we never thought a guy like you would become a Christian. We think that way a lot of times. And Matthew says, just so you know, the first people to worship King Jesus were people from far, far, far away. Why? Because true worship often starts far, far, far away. That's good news. God is not limited to people that are really close and kind of already close to the circle of action with Jesus and his people. He will go and get anyone, anytime, anywhere. That's the first thing I see. Here's the second thing I see. Is the journey can often get us close and still not quite there. Where do I see that? Verse 2, where do the wise men end up? Verse 2, these wise men come from the east. Where do they end up? In Jerusalem. Why is that interesting? Well, the wise men are very smart. They're probably from, like I said, Persia. They're sort of into astrology and astronomy. They're sort of, there's no separation of uh, religion and science in this day and age. This is a new modern thing where we separate and you can believe in science, but you can't believe in God or vice versa. These people believed in both and they studied the stars extensively. They were in this priestly tribe, probably out of Persia, this great empire that came before the Greeks and the Romans. And they were probably influenced by Daniel. If you know the story, Daniel was this guy who was brought into captivity in Babylon. And he starts talking about this Jewish one God, which is new to all them. And then this Jewish faith, this idea of Yahweh gets in the waters. So these uh, magi, wise men, are probably very smart, scientific men, scientific and spiritual guides. And they've got this influence of this Jewish religion that was taken in captivity years ago. They are not slouches. I just finished Elon Musk's biography. So good. So interesting. But Elon Musk, part of what he does is he goes to these Ivy League schools and he searches out the greatest students. Who has produced something in aeronautical engineering, in mechanical engineering? And then he gets them as fast as he can and then he works them to death. But he goes for the best. And when you think about the wise men, they are the best. They're smart, they've been studying for years, they're studying the stars, they're studying their religion, they're studying the religion of the Jews, and they see the star, and they follow it, and they end up in Jerusalem, which is fascinating, why? Well, there's a lot going on in Jerusalem, what's there? The religious leaders of the day, the civil leaders of the day, Herod is there, the cultural epicenter is there. Lots of stuff is in Jerusalem, except for Jesus. Their wisdom gets them close, but not quite to the object, object of their worship, 
Jesus Christ. I just find that fascinating because that's sort of how faith works often. It's like we all have these different faith journeys. Mine came through divorce in my family, and I was always searching for like more stability and consistency. Some of you came to faith through sort of intellectual uh, apologetics and really diving into, can I trust the Bible? Is God, you know, is, is he anti-science? But here's the thing. All of our journeys can get us close to the things of God without getting us to God. Like, our journey can get us into a church. Our journey can get us next to somebody sharing the gospel. Our journey can get us close, but does not necessarily mean or guarantee that it's going to get us to Jesus. Some of you might know some people that are close to Jesus. The goal is not to get to Jerusalem, to be around religious things. The goal is to get to Bethlehem, where Jesus is laying. And these guys, in all their wisdom, all their resources, they get close, but not quite all the way there. I just find that fascinating. God has to do something to get us all the way there. And that takes us to our next point. Here's the third thing I see in this. The journey must be supernaturally led if you're going to get to Jesus. Where do I see this? Go back to verse 2 there. What do I mean? It's got to be supernaturally led. Verse 2 says this. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. If you have your Bibles open, go down to verse 9 now. Because the same star is talked about again. In verse 9, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. You see what's happening? They're in the east, probably Iraq, and they see a star and they follow the star and they get to Jerusalem. And now they're in Jerusalem. They're not quite there yet. Baby Jesus is in Bethlehem. How far is Bethlehem? Probably six miles south of here. So think Desert Springs Bible to the 51 in Shea, Press Coffee where Caleb's always at. That's how far they now have to go. And how do they get there? That same star guides them six miles to the landing spot to be with Jesus. They were supernaturally led from the east to Jerusalem, close, close, close to the things of God, and then they're supernaturally led all the way home to be with Jesus. This is a fascinating story. Some of you get really worked up about these sort of side stories in the Bible, like the star of Bethlehem. I remember I had family members give me this DVD, the star of Bethlehem, and it's all this talk about all these things regarding this star. Great. But the star kind of served its purpose. It got the wise men from where they were at to the feet of Jesus. The star is not the point of the story. The star was just there to lead those to Jesus. It's just a sign pointing them to a greater reality. That being said, I want to remind us, what are the stars that are now pointing others to Jesus? The Bible would say you and I who love Jesus. This is how Matthew says it. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are the signs. We are the stars. How are people going to meet Jesus now? Will God, can God use a star? Yes. But more than likely, he's going to use his spirit-filled believers 
to point people to Jesus here and there. And in this season, I think it's a good time to look back on the stars, whatever those were that God used to point you to Jesus. For me, as my father after a divorce. We have a crazy story of a guy at our church who, before the election, he was getting really into all these sort of dark spaces. And he was just stressed. He was worried about all these things. And he had a very strong political conviction about what should happen in this past election. So much so that he was signed up, ready to go to January 6th to be a part of what happened there. Intense. And then his little preschooler starts asking him questions about God. He didn't have answers to them. He's like, I've got all this stuff I'm worrying about. All this stuff that I think I can somehow influence or shape or whatever. And my kid's asking me basic questions about God and I don't have answers. In that same time, he's buying a bike on Ofra. And the guy who brings him a bike is the greatest evangelist in our church, Cody Klingelbach. He knocks on his door, and Cody does what Cody does. He starts talking about Jesus, and he starts hugging you. And this guy gets connected to our church. So much so that all his sort of political signs and flags and all the stuff he has in his front yard, his neighbors are fierce about. And they write this letter to him like, you better take this down. And he reaches out to Cody. Cody, hey, I don't know how I'm supposed to handle this, but I bet Jesus would want me to handle a certain way. Will you help What was that? That was just a star God is using to guide this man closer and closer to the person of Jesus. We all have those. Why do we have those? Because God is so gracious and kind to take these men from the east and guide them by star and take us and guide them by relationships and circumstances and highs and lows of life to the person worthy of our worship, Jesus Christ. That's the third thing. Fourth thing I see is the journey will also pass through both hate and indifference. Where do I see that? Let's look at verse 3 together. It will pass through both hate and indifference. Verse 3 says this. When Herod the king heard this. So he's in charge. He's sort of not a legitimate king. He's not fully Jewish. He's sort of a half-breed. And he's just not a great dude. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. So there's, that trouble is stirred up. Stirred up. Why? Because these guys from the east show up. And they're asking questions about the Jewish faith and the Jewish king. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. In the journey to true worship, life kicks in real quick. Like worship would be easy if it was just, I come from far, far away. God gives me a star, leads me right to Jesus. I worship. We sing with Danny and the band until Jesus comes back to take us home. That's not how life works. Life is hard. There's opposition, there's hate, there's indifference. So I have four sons, and it's very interesting watch them sort of figure out how well faith plays in their school. My third grader told me the other day, Dad, I think there's four Christians in my grade. Like, how do you know that? He just kind of walks around. What do you think about Jesus? 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 What do you... I got four, Dad. And then my middle schoolers very quickly realizing my life would be a lot easier if I set Jesus to the side and just kind of navigated this social reality without him. And he's connected all those dots. He hasn't punted on that. He just sees. He's like, if I was to push this aside, 
life would be easier. Why? Because there's so much hate, a little bit, mostly because there's so much indifference to Jesus. Like in this story, he has to assemble all the chief, chief priests, all the scribes, all the people that have been writing God's word, all the people that have been teaching God's word, all this. He's got to assemble them and say, hey, what do you know about this Jesus guy? And they're sort of oblivious. That's fascinating. The religious center for the Jewish faith, and they have to get assembled. Hey, what do you think about this? What? These guys are asking about the king of the Jews. He's been born. And it's sort of not on their radar. Why? Because this world is filled with indifference. Nobody really cares about Jesus. Often when we open our eyes and look out. And that's sad. Like Caleb's going to be done with a sabbatical. My lead pastor from the church I left went on a sabbatical too. And he came back with this one resounding message. He was from Ohio. He spent time in Ohio. Went to Colorado. Had this great time. I don't know what Caleb's going to come back with. Hopefully a better sense of humor. But whatever... Hopefully some jokes that land, finally. (laughs) My pastor Luke came back with this. He says, in this world, nothing, nothing, and he was fired up, nothing is bringing the transcendence of God into our reality. Nothing. Unless the people of God and the church of God do it. Otherwise, everything else is just muting God, drowning him out, kind of pushing him to the sides. Nothing is bringing the transcendence of God into our reality. And we see that in, with the scribes and the priests. They're not even aware. Why? Because our journey to true worship is going to have to pass through indifference and hate often. That's part of the journey to get to true worship. Here's the fifth thing I see. This journey must be directed by the word of God. Where do I see that? Verse 5. So they get there. All right, what do you need, wise men? We want to know where Jesus is. What's their answer? Verse 5, what do they tell him? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, it's written down by the prophet. This is out of Micah, chapter 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. They have come from afar. They've gotten close. They got to Jerusalem. What's going to get them to the feet of Jesus? What's going to take them to the king of the Jews? I love what's written here. It is written in Bethlehem. True worship. We all worship something. The only way we get to true worship is through the word of God, period. That foster... Quote, if you worship money and things, if they're where you look for for real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's just the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And time and time again, you will start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. How do you go from worshiping your body or money or your career or your children or your spouse or your prestige or your self-esteem or whatever it is? How do you leave false worship for true worship? The only way any of us get there is through Jesus. How do we get Jesus? Through his word. Period. Part of Christmas, I think, is a chance to sort of re-simplify your life. I don't think that's what it ends up being. We just buy a lot of stuff. But part of it is like, what really is life about? It's about worshiping Jesus. How do I do that? Through his word. These wise men. 
How do I get to Jesus? Let me tell you. Let me open up this book and tell you. It says he's in Bethlehem. How do you find life? When you open up his word. Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. It's got all these great sort of coffee cup sayings and all these things you probably have magnets of. What he ends with, very few people kind of know, oh, that's what that is. How does he wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon he ever preached? It's where he kind of gives a picture and a vision for life in this world and this world to come. What is his ending statement? His exclamation point on his message, he says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus' final statement is, do you hear my words? Good, then do them, and your life will be like a house built on a rock. Translation, know me through my word and do what I say. That's how you get to true life. Only by and through his word. Which takes us to the final thing I see in this as I walk with these wise men. True worship is always going to be both external and internal. True worship is going to be both external, internal. Go to verse 7 with me. How does this story end? This is where sort of all of us kind of know. This is where our nativity scene tells us what happens here. Verse 7 says this. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Go. He's got false motives. Go and then come tell me. So they go, six miles. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. I don't know how exactly that looked, but the star takes them directly to the house where the baby lays. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. How did they worship him? Externally, here's what happens. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How did they worship Jesus? Externally. With what they have. Why do we worship Jesus? Because he's worthy. How do we worship Jesus? With our stuff, with our time, with our talents, with our treasures. And we give it to him. We could spend a lot of time talking about the, uh, what each of those means. But I think here's all it means is they took what was best from where they came from. And they gave it to Jesus as an act of external worship. Which is part of worship. But here's the thing that's fascinating about the story is what is not said. Like, what questions would you ask the wise men? You say, was it really a camel? They say, no, that's an American thing. You guys messed that up. Like, what would you ask them? It doesn't say anything about them asking his name. They show up. They open up their bags. They worship him with gifts. External worship. But what's going on inside? Did they say, Mary? What's his name? It doesn't say. I hope they asked. Because Mary would have said his name is Jesus. To which they say, well, what does Jesus mean? It means Yahweh saves. God is my salvation. Huh. 
what was happening inside of them. I think we should see that worship is this external reality and we should give our best. There's a pastor I love out of Ohio, Alistair Begg, but he has a great question to wrap up this message. He says this, they brought the treasures of the world to Bethlehem. But did they leave Bethlehem with the treasure of the world in their heart? That's the question of Christmas. As we worship him with our stuff, with our time, with our church attendance, as we show up with God's people to lift our voices and sing, do you have the treasure of Bethlehem in your heart? That is what Christmas is about. That is hopefully what the wise men left with. We don't know for certain, but as we watch their journey to true worship, that's what we see. Do you have the treasure of Bethlehem? Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us in your heart. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word that tells your story, that tells us how life really is. God, thank you for the Christmas story that we get to hear every year around this time. And wherever we're coming from, we need to hear it over and over again. The story of the most glorious and beautiful and worthy king in the universe, humbling himself to come and to be with us. And God, as we watch these wise men, I pray that we would just walk out of here this morning a little more aware of what our hearts of worship are like in this season. And you would turn our attention just slightly even, just for a moment, to look at Jesus once again and to worship. Lord, we love you. Thanks for this time together as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.